0: Welcome to Conversations About Life.
1: Happy to be with you, and it's a privilege to have a conversation with you, mm. so thank you. Thank you. So I'll introduce you by reading a paragraph from your uh, website. Okay. Josh is a photographer, designer, director writer speaker, creative business mentor entrepreneur and meditation teacher who is fascinated with how the mind and body create feelings and I know you from a workshop that um, I participated in and okay. it was along the lines of the super feel um, a a, um, a method in photography to give room for real authentic, um, experiences mm-hmm. of, you know, with yes. the people who are a part of the photo session. And then you're also mm-hmm. just from reading on your, you know, your website, um, are involved in, um, kindred meditation. a form of meditation. Yes. So, um, any, anything else you'd like to say as far as just who you are, Josh,
0: Well, I mean, as you can see from the bio, there's a lot of different things I'm interested in. And the commonality is really, I'm just fascinated with the human body. I'm completely obsessed and blown away with just how beautiful the organism of this incredible vehicle that we're in is and all of its capabilities and the way that it self organizes and changes and recreates itself in so many different ways particularly i'm interested in our interrelation to other bodies and how we form community and connection and relationship and the role that ha- that has in the way that our bodies produce feelings so all of those different forms that are mentioned on the on the website are really just different angles but I've tried to come in to see this thing I'm trying to look at better.
1: Okay. Um, so, yeah, it, it is a amazing. Well, the universe is amazing, you know, including amazing. us. And, um, you know, so there's, I've just jotted down um, some things. You know, I thought we could or at least kind of start off with um, something that, um, you know, you come across as is like someone with a lot of confidence. And um, so that's kind of um, uh, interesting to me because um, some people, they have confidence and it's almost like overly confident. They almost appear to be a fool or something like that. (laughs) Uh and then some people have confidence and it's kind of intimidating it's like it seems pretty Mm -hmm. serious and so forth you know Mm. um you have any thoughts about confidence um i i imagine um did your parents instill confidence in you
0: to be honest uh well i think i remember having a conversation similar to this with you however many years ago that was um because I resonate a lot with the character that you, you expressed yourself with at that workshop. You um, came across to me at that time as a gentle person, as a more reflective internal person, as a person who thought about things a lot and deeply and sensitive. And uh, that is exactly the way that I am. And, I expressed myself in a more similar manner as you did at that time when I was a kid all the way through to my 20s which I still was a kid but I got some unusual opportunities and the opportunities were to uh have a place to share what I thought was important with other people who were interested in listening and that changes you. And so there is kind of this idea that we're born a certain way and that's the way that we are. And while it's certainly true that our genetics plays a strong part in the tools that we have to work with as we build ourselves, my experience has been that we have so many tools to work with, so many building block options in those genetic strands, that in fact it is more accurate to say that it is our environment and specifically our response to our environment, which is the most dynamic force in how we end up coming across. And it's a big subject of interest to me: is how personality forms, how character develops, how a person expresses themselves and why they do, and is it possible to make that expression something that's more conscious which is to say more connected to their direct ability to decide rather than to just have it be confined to being a certain way because that's just is how it is I've always really I wasn't confident as a child but I was I was very inquisitive as a child and I was very I would say not quite rebellious, but I I didn't respect authority in the same way that most people do in the sense that many people are just told this is the way that it is, and they'll just go, oh, okay. And I always wanted to know why. And I wasn't sure that just because somebody else thought it was that way, that it really was. Like, maybe there would be another way, or maybe I could see it differently. And... I, that didn't, that kind of rebelliousness didn't express itself in the form of me, you know, sneaking out of the house or anything like that. I was actually quite terrified of my father. So I never a single time rebelled against him until I was deep into my twenties. But um, it did show itself in this sense of this questioning of the world, this questioning. And what a person really finds out when they question, and I've done an incredible amount of questioning is that the idea that there's just one right answer to almost anything just becomes ludicrous. There are many, many, many right answers to almost every question that constantly shift and change according to what direction a person is looking at something from. And it's a deep gift of travel as well, because I've gotten to interface at this point, probably spoken personally with more than 100,000 people. (laughs) That's a lot. And these were people from all over the planet, many different belief systems, cultures, environments, upbringing, genetics, all of it. And I have been changed by almost every single one of those interactions. And one of my favorite quotes of all time, and I'm a man who really loves quotes because they're like 30 years of somebody's life in a single sentence, is this guy named Alan Alda apparently very wise man observant and he said listening means being willing to let the other person change you and it doesn't mean letting them change you being willing to let the other person change you and to me that is one of the most profound things that i've ever heard it was such a beautiful essentialization of one of the core things that i've found and that is that we are not individuals we have an individual aspect, but we are inherently a part of a large collective that extends even beyond humankind to all of the other organisms of life that we are completely dependent upon for survival. And to just see ourselves as a guy walking down the street in a shirt who has to be somewhere by three o'clock, whose, you know, parents didn't love him right or whatever, and everyone's mean to him. That is such a thin, 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 thin way to explain and describe something that is so complex we are not nearly developed in language or in social concepts to be able to understand even, you know, what, what my pinky really is and what my pinky is doing at a certain moment the smartest people in the world can't create a pinky (laughs) and the body just does it constantly. Every single day, billions of them, it just keeps making them again and again. So there's really deep mysteries involved in what it means to be human. But what I'm very, very sure of is that we have potentially a lot more agency, a lot more ability to express, to decide how we become and who we become and, and why then has been told to us. And I know that it has to do with interactions with other people and not just any interactions with other people because obviously we are interacting every day with people. There's certain types of interactions that change us. And we often refer to those types as inspiring. And that's been a big piece of what's been fascinating to me is what does that mean? And if somebody can inspire you on a certain day, why don't they the next day, and why don't they all the time? And if we have the capability to inspire people, why aren't we constantly inspiring everybody? I've really looked at what does that mean? What is what is inspiration in the first place? So circling back to your original question, I believe that what we call confidence is just a character trait that develops as a response To believing that what you have to say matters, and some children are in situations where that is made clear to them, they interpret that through the body language, through the words of the parents, through their friends, through their schools, through their teachers, and many children do not get that experience. I myself did not really have that experience until later in my life, as I said, but the big challenge that makes this confusing is that we are so formative during those young years that the major experiences we have that end up affecting character for most people don't change that often throughout a lifetime for the main reason that human bodies are uh, very interested in pattern because of its ability to provide efficiency conservation of energy which is a huge key to survival. And so the patterns that somebody experiences as a child, whether positive or negative, will tend to become things that become familiar to the mind, and therefore associated with continued survival, and therefore sought out even after you leave those original influences that created those factors. So all of that to say that most people will tend to continue similar character expressions as they exhibited when they were children, but not because they're not capable of other character expressions, but because we are responses to our environment and we tend to seek out and stay in similar environments. And one of the reasons I came so far from where I started is because my entire life has been a transfer from different environments. And into my 20s, once I got that opportunity and I realized the benefit of it, I basically reshaped my entire life specifically to give me continued access to new environments. And this practice kindred that I've created is the simplest form of doing that, that I know how to, to offer to other people because I got really lucky in, in a lot of ways. And not everybody is going to get to have the experience of traveling the world and getting to share their mind like I did but they can still have the internal experience that I did, which was this chance to share what mattered to them and a chance to be validated by other. And when those two things happen, you change. Your brain changes. It's just neurological. And Kindred, of many ways I could describe it, that's one of the main ways is I wanted to give people the rare opportunities that I had had, and I wanted them to be able to do it Way cheaper than the costs that I had to pay to do that.
1: All right. Um, I guess when I think of um, confidence, um, I think of something similar to what you were you you did mention. Um, like it's the the moment is so important that. It's almost like being in the zone. You know, nothing else really matters. The thing that um, breaks self-confidence yes. some is sometimes it's self-consciousness. But if what yes. we're after is so important, like the moment with the other person or whatever it might be, then there's really no room for anything else. And I think that's um, similar. You mentioned something along those lines in there um, um, about um yeah, some I forgot exactly how you phrased it. but Something <laughs> like it was a
0: long answer. Yeah, <laughs> I don't fault you for forgetting. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um. So, like the the thing, envy that, like, I'm just tr- trying to ask is, or keeps coming to mind, is like, you know, what are you all about? Like, what's the most important thing to you? But you kind of like started off with that. Um, are interest in just the human experience and, um, which, um, you believe is, you know, much deeper than just, you know, potentially than, than how we live it. Um, so, um, something else, um, that I had just kind of scribbled down here and, um, is, um, you know, I've thought about, um, the idea of chaos and order and, um, I'm probably getting that from Jordan Peterson who speaks of, of that sometimes. I love
0: Jordan Peterson. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I do too. And, um, and you seem like really, you know, open and leaning over toward the chaos, side the creative side the the mm-hmm. flow the unknown and so forth the experiential mm-hmm. side mm-hmm. Um, compared to like the other side would be like the safe solid um yeah. known side and everything and of course they have to go they have to both go together you know like the the, the form and structure is sometimes the boat through which we sail right. through the chaotic waves and so forth. But 100%, I, yes. that's my impression of you that um you're into exploring that those waves of chaos, so to speak. And I guess that's where growth and learning and new things um arise from. Is that how you would see
0: it? Well as I recall you were a person who was interested in or had studied religious texts. Yeah, um, and that was true for me as well. And one of my favorite scriptures from the whole Bible is John talking about this vision that he had of this angel that had one foot on the on the shore and one foot in the sea. And mm-hmm. to me that has always just been the most striking visual of the entire the entire book i I just it resonated so deeply in me, and to me it's not about being in the chaos or being in the structure it's about being a bridge between both of those two worlds and I think that's what the angel in that vision represents he's got one foot rooted on the shore, the solid, the known, the past, and then one root one foot rooted in this. unformed this unknown this constantly shifting and moving of the future and with that angel's own body those two legs being rooted they intersect in the body in the core of the body and the angel himself becomes a bridge between those two areas and i've always just thought that was so striking and very poignant and i've always deeply related to that myself so it is true that I am probably way more in the wild, you know, what would appear to be chaotic, mm-hmm. unknown than most people, but I think mostly that's just because most people skew wildly towards the other side, which is the the known and the safe in the past. We're creatures of habit, we're creatures of pattern. History repeats itself. These are all common phrases. There's nothing in history that has to repeat itself. It's just that we're creatures of habit and pattern, so we tend to repeat ourselves. But I'm not saying I'm entirely free of that. But I I have experienced a lot less of that than I have than most people have, and there's there's benefits of that. But you even mentioned something that was interesting to me at the beginning of this, talking about how sometimes confidence can be an expression of beauty, and sometimes it can be an expression of um, idiocy. <laughs> You know? right. And there definitely is a line in there. And I, I cannot claim to have not made many, many mistakes. I, I definitely have. But another of my favorites, Oscar Wilde, he says, only those who risk going too far can possibly know how far one can go. Mm-hmm. And that, that is the cost of pushing into the edge is you're going to make mistakes. You're going to make more mistakes than most people do. And from many people's viewpoints, you will be foolish. That will be the way that they they perceive you. However, when I look at the long span of history, as we understand it, I can't help but notice how many of the people who gave the most to us were often ridiculed in their time. And then later they were championed and exalted and, you know, Van Gogh Mm -hmm. died without an ear and, you know, poor. And now his paintings are being sold for ungodly amounts of money. There's many, many examples of him, you know, they killed Jesus for God's sake. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it's common for, for us to not be good as a, as a species at telling the difference between foolishness and, and wisdom. And um, I think they're related, honestly, I do. I I think there is a relation.
1: I I may have been thinking more about like uh, maybe arrogance like there's um, there's wisdom in, in humility too. Um, so that, that may be kind of what I'm thinking of it may have been a better word than overconfidence perhaps. But
0: Well, I, I don't think you're wrong. I mean, I think, I think I've noticed that too. And in fact, of all the people that I've met, it's the only really humble ones that touch me and impress me the most because to me, if you're humble you're paying attention because if you really look at the universe the grandness of it the expanse of it the magnificence of it the mysteries that our bodies are made of the only appropriate response in my opinion to all of that is humility Mm -hmm. and so somebody who isn't humble no matter what their other achievements are a lot of times it's just not super interesting to me because all of my favorite people for sure, I would describe it as, as humble. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, I think it's possible to be in connection with what you feel you have to share and also still be humble about it. Yeah. And
1: so in your, that first paragraph I read, You know, there's the mention of the mind and the body and feelings, and that seems important to you. I started to listen to a conversation you had on the Empower Human podcast yesterday, uh, but then I turned it off because I didn't want to be responding to that conversation. I wanted to actually be talking with you and responding to the things you're saying now. But you did mention a little bit of your story growing up, and you mentioned loneliness and and so in just thinking about the my, so, so I can see how perhaps, I don't know if this, if this is a true connection or not, but perhaps, you know, loneliness is a motivation for, um, you know, kind of understanding how to create good feelings perhaps and being positive and so forth. But, um, but I have some, you know, this may, may be a little bit of, pushback, uh, or just questions about that, about just, um, isolating feelings perhaps. Um, for example, and, um, well, you know, I enjoy feeling good. Like in the winter, I take cold showers because it just afterwards, I just feel good, you know? Um, and I do th- different things to feel good, but, there's also like kind of like an emptiness to that sometimes mm-hmm. um, because it's like, well, I got this feeling, but it's not attached to um, something that good feelings is, are supposed to be attached to. And, um, and it could be almost like, you know, what's the difference between that and a drug, for example, that could create good feelings. Like um, from what mm-hmm. I've heard, um, cocaine, um, works on our brains to um, uh, give us the same feelings as like when we're achieving something, you know, and so that feels wonderful. Um, but um, like, but I I kind of think of like there's we're you know created like uh, as humans and as these human creatures, we are to be. Um, there's certain things that make for a healthy life that create healthy, positive emotions, like connection and physical touch and, um, these, um, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and progress through projects or, you know, serving and stuff like that. So, um, I wonder about the idea of, um, focusing, um, so much on, you know, or I don't know about so much or so, but focusing on the feelings in isolation with that human activity. And I can see how it can be helpful because we need help sometimes. And, um, but I wonder if, um, like if a better way is um, to be trying to, to build our life as much as we can in some way that um, is like, human in the way that humans are to be. And it, and those positive emotions just coming forth from that and things along those lines. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that?
0: Oh yeah. Tons of thoughts about that. I, I'm certainly not an advocate for loneliness. I, in in fact, a lot of my life has been specifically exploring how to end loneliness. Hmm. Um, I think of loneliness as a disease and I think that it is it's a curable one it, it definitely has cures our society presently is shaped uh, to make it difficult for people to not be lonely to be honest and loneliness can even happen inside of structures where people are surrounded by people and there mm-hmm. can still be incredible loneliness we have suicides at all-time highs you know we have we have a lot of isolation happening uh, World Health Organization even, cites loneliness as the number one cause of disease uh, on the planet, which was startling when I found that out. So I think there's a difference between loneliness and aloneness. I think it's a very important difference. And specifically to your question, I think that there's different stages of maturity in, in humans. And we've got this really obvious one of like babies and children and young adults and then adults and that's kind of obvious to us because we can see it but mentally and emotionally there's a similar progression that happens it just doesn't happen in most people not to the degree of their full potential that's for sure and what I mean by that is when I suggest that feelings can be created and managed internally I don't mean the person should Um, that the highest mark of achievement would be to not need anybody else or want anybody else to be involved in feeling generation. What I'm more saying is that many people are at baby or young child version of relationship with their emotions. So they need constant stimulation. They need constant soothing. They need constant interaction in some form just to be okay. And if they don't get that from real people, then they get it from video games, or they get it from Netflix, or they get it from drugs, or they get it from food. They get it from these things that are trying to replace this constant soothing. And it, it's not even that I think that's bad. I just think it's not the most joyful or productive use of a life. So my, the thing I really try to help people with in this specific category is not saying you're never going to need anybody else again to use your emotions. It'll, it's to learn how to self-soothe. It's to learn how to create at least a bare minimum of what's necessary to be okay. And why that's such an important shift is because a baby and a young child and even a young adult is dependent upon the other for their needs to be met. And as long as we have dependency, depending upon what level that is, you know, a child is less dependent than a baby, and a young adult is less dependent on it, uh, than a child is. But the further down that ladder that you are, the more desperate your actions are going to become when you feel that your needs haven't been met. So a baby, for instance, when it doesn't feel its needs have been met, it screams, it, it'll it hit, you know, it, it becomes the basest version of the animal that we are as possible. And even though people grow up and they get big bodies, they do that exact same thing. They scream, they hit, they, they're being their most base form of the animal. So I deeply enjoy connecting with other people. That's why I'm doing this right now with you. And I love the interchange of emotional circuit and intellectual circuit that can happen between bodies. It's a very beautiful thing. Uh, however my ability at this point in my life to regulate my own feelings makes me not desperate for anyone or anything any longer. And that lack of desperation allows me to use more of my higher brain function to make more rational, conscious, healthy choices about who to connect with and when and for how long. And to put that in that balancing place between those those two legs of the angel like we were talking about because addiction in many ways it's slavery it's a slavery where you're really not you're not in in charge of your own time because your body is screaming so loudly that this other thing needs to happen and when we use the word addiction we often think of like drugs or something like that but drugs are by far not the main thing people are addicted to people are addicted number one right now to social media on the whole planet. It's the most addiction we've ever seen in the entire history of earth. People are literally chemically addicted to that. And I think number two, they're addicted to relationships that they have with people, certain dynamics and then playing out in certain ways. And I don't think those things are evil. I just think the balance of them tends towards addiction and addiction is a loop. I actually think the opposite of addiction is exploration. So, When you're addicted, you do the same thing again and again and again and again. And as I said, I'm not even putting that down. I'm just saying it prevents growth. It prevents exploration. So my main focus and excitement around helping people to become self-sufficient in terms of self-responsible for their emotions is just about helping people graduate, at least to a place of young adult, if not to a place of adult, where if... You know, you told me I was a stupid idiot. You never wanted to talk to me again. I'd be like, "Ah, that sucks, but I'll be okay. Versus somebody at a lower emotional state, even like the way I was 10 years ago, that would have bothered me for days, weeks. And that's not efficient. Right.
1: Yeah. So the whole idea of being able to rise above our situation and... I think, like, just you mentioned that I was into religious texts. So, yeah, I come from a Christian perspective. And I think the need for that drives me hard toward Christianity because it's a way to rise above and go forward um, in a situation rather than just being bogged down in it. In a sense, it is order um, but um, I can you know I can relate to I can relate to everything you were saying and I can relate to the need to uh, not be in the turmoil of needing people to respond in certain ways and and things like that
0: well I think religion is actually it's social technology that allows primarily, emotional regulation. I think that that has been its main function throughout history on a biological level, is to give people practical, efficient systems to be able to regulate their emotions. You see people who are devout, you know, that word devout is an interesting word, and those people are the kind of people who almost always have deeply emotional experiences, you know, with their relationship with the divine. And Even, you know, these ideas around forgiveness and that there's a God who forgives, that's about emotional regulation, you know, about, you know, thou has turned my mourning into dancing. That's emotional regulation. I could go on and on with so many examples of what it is, but that's one of the core needs that humans have. And I think that as people have thrown out religion, because of their perspectives of its accuracy or not based on interpretations, you know, mixes of science and all that kind of stuff. I think, unfortunately, they really threw out one of the best things we had going for us in terms of our ability to regulate emotions. So whether a religion is accurate or not, to me, is a whole separate question from how good was it at helping people to feel okay and have homeostasis, because that's a very practical benefit of it setting aside the other implications of it. And I personally think most of the religions that I've certainly ever encountered had a lot of really beautiful ways to bring people together, to give them a sense of purpose, to give them this understanding that things would be okay even in the worst of their times. These are all base emotional regulation needs that the body has. And I have some quite deep dives into that personally that I'm not sure if you want to get into or not but um, I actually even believe that the whole idea of Jesus being in your heart and of course you know heart is like the center of the feeling symbolically and this ability to be able to communicate with Jesus with God all by yourself it's, it's a way of creating a lack of loneliness in the body when otherwise a person would theoretically be lonely. But you're talking to yourself, you know? That's the thing about Jesus talking to you is nobody else ever hears it. And I don't think that that makes it not happening, but I do think that it's clear that people who are able to have strong relationships with God as they experience God are people who will tend to be better at regulating their emotions in difficult moments than other people. And I, I don't take that as an accident. I think it's beautiful. So I won't go further into that unless that's an interesting subject to you, but thats I thought a lot about that because I had a, a quite deep experience with religion myself as a child. And with everything that I've learned out in the world, and the scientists that I interface with now, none of that has changed the profound amount of value that I think there is in a lot of those systems. Even though personally, I feel that a lot of the ways those systems have been interpreted and used have also been the source of a lot of suffering for people. But to me, that's about the humans interpreting them, not necessarily their original intention and uh, not their highest use.
1: Yeah. So you, you mentioned it being kind of a separate question how useful a religion is or a religious system or belief system compared to, like, is it a true claim and so forth. But we don't want to find comfort in something that's false. I mean, we don't want to be a fool in that sense. So there, it seems like there's a, a connection. I mean... Uh, between the two as far as we want to be grounded in reality you know what I mean
0: so that's the part I don't know if you want to go into or not because when you really start looking at the nature of reality it it, it starts to become pretty tricky to really understand what reality even is like Solomon who's supposed to be the wisest person of all time he says as a man thinketh so he is which you could you could easily take as a comment on the nature of reality and to say if somebody believes that's the true thing, it's going to affect them biologically. And I, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. And so, yes, I, I understand your point that we don't want to believe be believing false things, but if I had to say it simply, everything I've learned about that, true and false are not what we thought they were. They're they not. I was taught to believe true meant someone said it one time, and then that's what it is. And when you really start looking at true and false, it's, it's very connected with subjective experience in almost every single case. And once we're dealing with subjective experience, we're dealing with perception. Once we're dealing with perception and interpretation, we're dealing with the imagination. We're dealing with the inherent ability to create. And we're also dealing culturally with other people deciding whether or not to believe something that someone said to them one time. Because, as powerful as religion is to people, in almost every single case, everything that they were ever told about religion was told to them by someone else. And so then it comes down to well, if that person trustworthy? It and it's kind of a really long line of telephone. And some of these people who are now 2,000 years dead, in a certain way, they're unassailable. Their characters are unassailable because you can't make a rational argument that they were wrong because, I mean, they're, were they wrong? Were they right? I mean, they're dead. We don't know anymore. And I, as I said, this starts to bridge into like a whole nother section, but I'm just saying that truth is not as simple to me as a singular perspective. This ability that we have to be able to move around something and look from very many different sides clearly shows there's a lot of ways to see everything. So if a person is talking about whole truth and absolute truth, which are hugely popular subjects in a lot of fundamental religion, from what I've seen a lot of the time, those words easily get interchanged with what I would think is more accurately perspective.
1: Yeah. So so I can see that um you know just thinking about the universe like how can we um grasp it and so forth and and I think we're boxed well, my, I think of us as creatures that and we are boxed in in a way by being creatures just like yeah. my cat sure. is boxed in by being a cat so my cat can't relate to um what it's like to be a human but the, my cat knows everything she needs to know to be a good, decent cat, you know. And then I've, I think <laughs> I can, I might not be able to grasp the to mysteries you know. of the universe, but I, I know what I need to be. I mean, I have what's needed to be a good human. And I kind of think of it's like the, the Bible as um, a very practical book. It's not answering those mysteries that we wish we could grasp, you know, but that we just because we are creatures, we can't, but it gives us what we need. um, So I believe um, that it's a very human book, but um, I also think it's um, through humans, God revealing himself to us and giving us um, what we need in order to live in relationship with him and each other and you know, there's a lot more to it and so forth, but, um, I agree with Beautiful. you that, um, yeah, to kind of, it, it'd be, it's kind of arrogant to feel like we have a, a hold on truth as far as like, you know, I mean, there's just so much, um, uh, worlds so among, uh, you know, inside of worlds, inside of, you know, there's just,
0: exactly. Yeah.
1: Um. I kind of, though, when you were talking about, um, uh, you know, just perspective, I do, I think that there is like perspective um, and things are subjective, but there, it gets down to something absolute, I think. And I, I kind of see this most clearly in um, in morals. Like there, I think there is something that's, you know, there can be like really right and really wrong. And, um, and that's not to say there's not subjective ethics, like in one culture doing something might be the good thing, but in another culture, um, doing something might the same exact thing might be a bad thing, but yet Mm -hmm. there's, there's something fundamental, maybe like when getting down to like the word love or something like that, um, that is fundamentally good And there's also something that's fundamentally evil, um, not so. So I guess that's kind of like um, uh, agreeing with you in a sense or or seeing it along the ways that you are in a sense that things are from our vantage point and so forth. But there's something underlying it that's, um, you know, solid and um i mean there i think there is absolute um good and evil and so forth you,
0: you th- well it's one of the things that really impressed me about jordan peterson because um, when a person really starts looking at the nature of reality and starts digging into the concepts that were taught and then starts questioning them and then you just realize at a certain point that every single concept is just made by humans at some point. It's just a way to describe something that somebody experienced. And they do have varying degrees of reliable effects. Uh, but that doesn't mean that's the only way to describe them. You know, even having this part of the conversation is, is challenging, starts getting challenging linguistically. But when you start going into that and you realize we're kind of just making everything up, uh, that's kind of where nihilism formed from. And it's, it's understandable to me why some people got there. Well, nothing means anything then since we just all made it up. And it also makes sense why fundamental belief systems are so popular because nihilism is terrifying. If, if, nothing means anything, then why does anything matter? We, we need meaning. We need purpose. We're creatures that require that. And I personally never got to a nihilistic place because I was thrilled when I found out that we made everything up because it made me feel a lot of permission and freedom to say like, oh, wow, well, then we can make up anything we want. But the same moment I found out about that, my ex-girlfriend found out about it and it terrified her. And I'll I'll never forget the dichotomy between our two experiences because she was really excited about human rights. And when we both found out at the same time through reading this really beautiful way of this this passage from this one book that kind of made this epiphany happen for both of us, the person basically just said, um, it was Yuval Harari, who I'm a huge fan of, he had the book called Sapiens. And he basically said, "Human rights is made up." She was horrified by that, and I was delighted by it, you know. And because if we made up human rights, we can make up something even better. That's how I took it. And for her, she had used her belief in the fundamental absolute nature of human rights to justify her leaving her family experience as a child, which felt very oppressive to her in the culture that she grew up in. How can you? S- and it was this. I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: How can you say better, though, like if uh, we can make up human rights, we can make up something like if there's not something absolute, then what does the word better even mean?
0: Well, where I kind of came to, um, I'm not saying there's not something absolute. I'm just trying to say it's very difficult to decide what that absolute is. And that leads me back to Jordan Peterson because he's facing those same questions, for him, the thing that really stood out to me about this conversation that he had with himself was he decided torture was the thing that was horrible. That was like baseline. And if if torture was horrible, if torture was evil, hurting someone else on purpose was evil, specifically Mm -hmm. for no other reason than just to watch them suffer, sadism, then there must be a good. And that is just a really brilliant thought to me and even if we don't exactly know what the good is and we can't measure it and we can't see it and all that there must be a balancing opposite to that Im, you know implying on an instinctual understanding that that the universe is made of symmetry and even that is a leap we don't know for sure that it is but it seems to be a lot of symmetry in it i just really like that line of reasoning yeah. you know i i nihilism would be thinking that nothing means anything and everything is nothing and so there's no point to it all i don't think that I do feel that there are absolute truths. I just personally don't feel I'm at a level where I could describe what these absolute truths are to you with any kind of confidence. That doesn't mean I don't feel that they're there, but I certainly have seen that what many people are referring to as absolute truths to me are not at all and have created quite large blindnesses that have made them feel justified in treating people in certain ways to me are the exact opposite of of what they're purporting to believe so but to your other question of better I just mean more beautiful I just things that when I got into these questions I went away from good and bad because I was grown up taught good and bad but when you travel a lot and you see well good is good here and bad is bad there and that means something different to these people and actually I kind of liked that person so are they really bad and then you would look at a war, and it's like on both sides of the war, they're both praying to God. And one of them's going to win and one of them's going to lose. So, who is the good guys and who is the bad guys? There's a lot of situations like that that just get tricky. So, for me, I started switching it to what's healthy and unhealthy. Because health seems to be something that's more of a baseline. There are things that promote life and there are things that detract from life. And I got more interested. And spending my men- mental energy deciding if something was healthy or unhealthy rather than good or bad. So semantics in a certain way, but I think an important difference for me because it's more quantifiable and it's something that can be shared over, a, I think, a broader region of people generally.
1: Let's talk about relationships and just connecting with other people. What... How do you go into, like, a connection to get the most out of it? Like, let's say you were just getting together with someone for a cup of coffee or something along those lines. Um, Is there anything you've learned about um, making the most of that time so that it's significant and satisfying and beautiful for, you know, both people as they're involved in it?
0: Yeah, I think one of my favorite quotes is um, by an artist from Europe named Zizek I think is his last name and he says the first creative act is silence and it's about the deep importance of creating a space and being empty before you make something like even in the the, the creation story in Genesis, you know, it's like in the beginning, the world was without form and void, like all of this magic starts with nothing and the darkness is always first, the emptiness is always there first and I think it's one of the main things that prevents people from truly connecting and connecting just means a circuit closes and circuit closing means movement happens and movement is growth and growth is life. So connecting or not connecting is not a small difference. It's the difference between life and death, to be honest. So I take connection very, very seriously. And for a connection to happen, there has to be emptiness first. And I think one of the main things in the way, the main obstacles to connection is people are too full. They're too full of their own ideas. They're too full of what they already know. They're too full of the past. They're too full of worrying about the future. They're just full. So in the kindred practice it's the first step of it of the three steps the first is uh it's called open and you just you practice emptying yourself you you um create uh, an an opening in yourself a, a readiness even jesus would say i must decrease so that he may increase same thing it's like there must be a an emptying that happens so as much as possible, when I go to into any interaction, I just like to come completely open. And that is something that a person can physically practice. And that is partly why I built Kindred, because not only is it key in relationship uh, of a kind between two people, it's also absolutely fundamental in art, because art is just relationship in a slightly different structure. It's your own relationship with this form that you're expressing in but we only think that it matters or we largely measure its value based on how that form is able to be a bridge that other people can connect to you through so i see art and relationship as incredibly intertwined and connection is a huge piece of that and connection has a prerequisite of openness so i always come open And uh, one of the early ways that I came up with to help me tell if I was open or not is something that I call the three questions. And the first question is, what can I get from you? The second question is, what do you want from me? And the third question is, who are you? And in the first question, what can I get from you? That's basically an advanced version of Predator. And what do you want from me is basically just another iteration of pray. And that what can I get from you, what do you want from me is two halves of an infinite physical cycle that really just never ends. And the only way out of that is this third question, which is, who are you? And when I say, who are you, it's just symbolic. It doesn't necessarily mean, you know, who are you to a person. You could be holding up a flower and you could be saying, who are you? You could be looking in the mirror, and you could be saying, who are you? It's about a state of the mind that is not in reference to this predator-prey cycle. And even though we think we're so advanced from animals, uh, I think a lot of the times we're really actually not. And many of the decisions that we're making and the choices that we're making are actually just different forms of those same kind of situations. So... Um if a person can use a tool like that to help them, some, so sometimes they can recognize that they'll go into a conversation hoping that X, Y, or Z will happen. And that is, what can I get from you a lot of the time? Or they'll be so concerned with past experiences of things not going well, they'll already walk into the situation going, what do you want from me? <laughs> what, what do you even want? And both of those two sides are not going to create this third this third question of the opening. So that's definitely one of the main pieces is is me feeling like um, I want to be open, I want to be curious, and as much as possible, I want to find things in what the other person is saying that excite my body physically. And when my body is excited physically and there's an expression of that thrill going through, that's joy to me, and so I basically govern my life as much as possible with this instrument of the body that tells me if I'm feeling joy, which is not necessarily happiness, because sometimes I'm sad while I'm feeling joy. But just very aware of my life, very aware of the precious nature of it, of the irreplaceable nature, and in conversations when I'm by myself, when I'm walking out in trees, like as much as possible i try to be in that zone
1: and paying attention to when you're feeling joy physically that's really that's really good and uh, interesting is is this a regular part of your days most of the time
0: oh yeah when people ask me what i do i say i study <laughs> joy that's what I do. And the reason for that is because at every single level of the interchange, that's what matters most to me. Coming back to the baseline, what, what my good is is joy. I, that's the thing that I can count on the most is does my body come alive because of this thing? And I don't mean alive in a stimulant way. I mean am I aware of my connection to life, life itself, presence. Um, I actually think presence is a sense. People talk about being present, but I think presence is a sense similar to hearing or seeing. But it's a sense that measures how alive you are. And I think it's interesting that even in our language, we say, I feel so alive right now. That clearly demonstrates that we feel different levels of life. And for me, joy is that level where you feel so much life that it has to burst out of your body in some way. You smile or you laugh or your your hands move or you just get this exhilarating you know, feeling. So I think the body's one of their main purposes is to be like a compass. And if there's more joy, go that way. And if there's less joy... You know, you have to recalibrate. So that's probably the core of all of my practices of everything that I do is I'm just constantly paying attention to that. So when it comes back to this idea of your conversation, I only have joyful conversations. That's all I have. And if it's not joyful, I exit the conversation. First, I try to explore how to make it joyful. Um, And the way to do that is through the curiosity like I was talking about. But if a person is just completely unwilling to engage in interesting conversation, I I don't have time for that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. um, I guess one thing I don't know. This is just the way I think exceptions always come to my mind. My, my son, one of my sons is like this and it drives me crazy, (laughs) but I've walked into rooms (laughs) where, there was so much sorrow that everything was just sucked out of me, you know, and there's those situations, um, to, um, and there's joy. Like I said, joy is not always happiness. And sometimes, um,
0: yes. Agreed. you know,
1: we need to experience sorrow and, um, maybe there's some kind of deep. Yes joy in there even though we might not feel it at first time i don't know but um, yeah yeah
0: i agree it's a it's a semantical challenge you know but when i say joy i don't mean right. happiness kind of joy i mean a yeah. so
1: something recently that i've been doing is um well, i have a planner and at the end of the week um there's a time it you know leads me through some questions for planning the next week, but it also the first thing it says is like look back on your previous week and list like a few wins. So I, I kind of think back. I've really enjoyed doing this. And I think you know what you know. So the way I interpret that is what seems significant in this past week. What has happened that um, really seems important to me? So um, I'm just wondering for you, um, it would probably. Be those times where you you know felt joy so you know if you were to list in the, you know the, the past week what were a few things that um your wins or what seemed significant or the time that you you know just experienced joy that just seemed significant like what kind of things would you list like what would you be doing um, um yeah
0: so that's my question Well, to be honest, studying this, practicing this for as long as I have, my body's frequently in states of joy. It's, it's by far the most common experience that I have now, though that was definitely not always the way that it was. So the body is actually the thing that creates joy. And once a person gets into that more and more and more, you don't need external experience to trigger it as often. And I still am triggered by external experience, but I'm not dependent on it anymore, kind of like what we were talking about earlier. But I have also shaped my life to basically fill my life up as much as possible with the things that that I find are environments that I most easily experience joy. The biggest one for me is, uh, in this particular moment of my life, is probably like my personal relationship you know, my my partnership is just an incredible fountain of joy for me. Uh, I'm with a very beautiful human who's very, um, very kind and thoughtful and caring and uh, loves to be playful like I am playful with life constantly. So that's huge for me. I have a lot of a lot of moments of joy with that that took a really long time for me to learn how to do to, to be in a really beautifully balanced partnership like that but I finally <laughs> nailed that so that's huge I really love um, music I have these composers that are some of my friends of mine but they make really really special music that doesn't have words to it it's kind of ambient or soundtrack type of music and it just really allows my mind to explore. I have a deep relationship with my creative impulse and I, I write and I uh, make things, businesses and structures and continue the kindred um, practice. Kindred itself is something that I'm not only created and also teach. I also share it, you know, with the other people in the community. It's a huge source of joy for me. Kindred is basically a, a joy practice. It's it's a way to practice creating more joy consciously in, in the body. So I love trees, I love the sky, I love water, I love the ocean, I live by the ocean and I go there as much as I can. I love food. I mean, like it's a crazy long list. Cool.
1: Um here before uh, kind of wrapping up and so forth wh- what routines do you have in your life that are meaningful do you have any structure at all that is helpful to you um
0: i really appreciate structure and the part where i'm always very watchful is that the structure doesn't start to become hypnotic mm-hmm. in a certain way i remember my grandmother was a Catholic and I she would always take us to mass and stuff. And in some of the people that I saw, they would be going through this certain routine and I knew they had done it so many times, it didn't mean anything to them anymore. I'm not singling out that particular viewpoint. I'm just saying that's one of my early experiences of seeing that in somebody. And I see that now too in like grocers who have to say, would you like a brown bag or a white Mm -hmm. plastic bag? It's like they've said it so many times, they just don't Mm -hmm. mean it anymore. And um, I am wary of structure's potential Mm -hmm. to do that. So I try to build structures that allow me to be completely free and use structure to support wildness. As I said, trying to find the balance between those two things. I never let structure... Structure, structure, because I think that's just a recipe to joylessness. But I have definitely recognized, and the ability, you know, the reason I've been able to be as successful as I have uh, business wise is because I do understand the importance of structure. Many people who are as wild as I am are not as good at structure Mm -hmm. as I am. So I I definitely do have a strong sense of structure. I think. The practices that are probably most regular for me are writing. Journaling is a very, very powerful way of self-reflection. And self-reflection is just self-knowing and self-seeing. You can't know what you have to give or say to someone else if you're not regularly giving yourself space to find out what that is. Because nobody, I don't think, is born knowing. Going back to the example of Jesus, we don't even hear from him really until he's like 30 I don't think that's an accident. I think it took him that long to really get in touch with what it was that he was here to be and say and to do. If it took him that long, I think the rest of us can probably like forgive ourselves or maybe it even taking much, much longer than that. But I think the work of that looks like self-reflection, which is often a thing that is benefited by spaces of aloneness, not complete aloneness I don't recommend that but spaces of that where it's quiet enough to hear yourself you know people watch a lot of tv and people are on their phones all the time that's not being alone that's not alone so I have regular structured spaces in my life where I'm alone I'm alone creating I'm alone making um how exactly that happens and when that happens I try to switch up quite often because Um, I don't want it to become dogmatic. And for me, that works. The balancing between that works. I would also add in exercise. Uh, As I said, I used to be a very heady person, and then over the years, I became more and more interested in the body. And I ended up finding out that the body plays a far larger role in quality of life in intelligence even, in the creative process, in connection than certainly I was ever taught. And so the more that I've come to understand the importance of the body, the deeper my own relationship with it has become, the more I've learned how to honor it. And one of those ways for me about twelve years ago, thirteen, was I started eating really healthy. I became vegan and started watching what I ate more. And then over the last uh, couple of years, I became more and more interested in exercise. So I exercise probably five days a week or something like that. Love taking long walks. That's definitely a part of the structure of my life. It supports my craziness.
1: Well, Josh, is there any other topic or anything else you'd like to uh, discuss You know, before we wrap up or anything else
0: I think just the main thing that comes to me is I just really want to thank you for your time and your presence and your attention and your care and I just I remember the first time I met you I felt a very powerful gentle soul gentle spirit and I just I just think you're existing in that way that you do is affecting everything around you and it's really beautiful and it's affected me Nice one to thank you for that. Thanks for reaching out, and inviting well, thank you. Me. Thank and it's you. just a privilege
1: sure. uh, to be able to do this. So, thank you for your time and for just being here and engaging with me. So, thanks a lot. And you're um, you're welcome. your website, um, it's um, JoshDurox.com, and I'll put that in the show notes as well. Yes. Okay. Thank you, Josh. Awesome.
0: Thank you.